The world is crazy, it's pretty clear. You need to know why, how it affects the lives of those we hold so dear. I can't explain everything, but together, maybe we can find our way. Aren't you tired of the violence, the hatred, the racism? We need a brand new day. And what about climate change, housing that's substandard but still unaffordable, and our public education system that favors some and leaves so many others behind? But who's going to pay? And then there are the jobs with wages so low they make you feel worthless as you struggle to pay the rent and all the other bills piled high. Yes, we need a brand new day. Is there enough hope among us to overcome despair? Enough wisdom to overcome ignorance? Enough generosity to overcome deprivation? Enough goodness to overcome all those who claim to be patriots but hate their government? We need a brand new day. That's right, a brand new day. This is Lehigh Valley Discourse, only on WDIY, and I'm your host, Alan Jennings. Don't look now, but if you are a female of childbearing age, the United States Supreme Court thinks you're an idiot. The extremely conservative court, appointed mostly by extremely conservative presidents, is allowing states to restrict access to legal abortion only when the doctor cannot detect a heartbeat, which is rare prior to the six-week deadline imposed in the law. Looking for someone to blame? How about the two right-wing presidents, actually three, George W. Bush, his father, George H.W. Bush, and former President Donald Trump, who nominated these people? And you can blame the United States Senate for approving those right-wing president's appointments. Or you can blame the right-wing governors in the states that will follow the lead of Texas. Or you will be able to blame those state legislatures that will pass the bill. Those are the people along the way who had to assume you don't know enough to make the right decision. But you know, this is a democracy and votes matter. So mostly, we can all blame ourselves. Now, kick your shoes off, sweetheart, and get back in that kitchen. And if that isn't enough misogyny, if you are a resident of Northampton Area School District, Steve Lynch and his platoon of 20 strong men has told you to stay home, honey. Us big tough guys will take care of it. They don't want to be forced to protect their children from a new strain of the deadly coronavirus that has developed precisely because of those people who are ignoring the vast body of scientific evidence collected during this pandemic. They don't want anyone to tell them what to do. And they don't think anyone should tell them what to do, even if it's obvious that they really don't know what's best for them and their kids. This one is so simple, I'll say nothing more than get your shots. And have the latest round of crazy assaults by Mother Nature on our lives sparked any ideas about whether what the scientists have been warning us was coming might be real? It is in this nonsensical environment that Susan Wilde serves as our elected member of Congress. Congresswoman, welcome. Thank you, Alan. It's good to be with you again. I think you hold the record for the number of appearances by a single individual on my show, so thanks for your commitment to transparency. What an honor, and I I consider transparency to be uh, very, very important for any elected official. I need to add one simple thing to your simple thing, and that is Election Day is November 2nd, and people need to get out and vote. That, I think, flows directly from the comments you just made. Well, thank you. Now, Susan, Susan is, is with us for the first half hour tonight, Then we'll be joined by the man who is leading the campaign to overturn another bad decision by the Supreme Court of the United States called Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission that gave personhood status to corporations, opening the door to a flood of new, opaque sources of money. So let's talk to our member of Congress, Susan. How is it that we could be at this point in the abortion debate? Well, Alan, it's really kind of hard for me to believe. Roe versus Wade became the law of the land when I was in college. Uh, And without belying my age, I will tell you that was many, many years ago. And it's just hard for me to believe that we are at this point. And by the way, because it was made into law when I was in college... I went through years of high school and some college with women who had to go through what I'll call back alley abortions. Right. And I have I had a roommate who did. I can tell you from that kind of experience that we don't want to go back to those days. And you know the thing is as as many people have said we're not going to get rid of abortion with this Texas law or any other state that imposes this kind of law. We're just going to get rid of legal abortion. Clean abortion. Which is responsible, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I'm I'm proud I, I'm proud to be an original co-sponsor of the Women's Reproductive Reproductive Health Freedom Act which was introduced by Judy Chu. We have a tremendous groundswell of support for it in the House. Unfortunately, I doubt that it will ever pass 
the Senate, but we're going to work on it, and it would have the effect of codifying Roe versus Wade. What amazes me is that there are so many more members of Congress who are women now than there were 40 years ago, and yet we're mm-hmm. still having to fight this battle, and it seems to be lose, losing the battle. It's, it's got to be frustrating. Well, remember, first of all, our numbers aren't even close to 50% women yet. Right. And, and secondly, a, a number of those women are Republican women who have taken on the abortion issue as, you know, a rallying cry for their base. I'm inclined to think that it's a generational thing, that the next generation of women don't understand or realize what our generation of women had to go through in order, and, for, and prior generations had to go through to get where we are. And they, they're going to be really you know, in bad shape when they realize what they've lost for their inactivity, for their lack of uh, involvement. I've talked about that a lot, Alan, on the campaign trail and elsewhere, because the young women I know haven't lived through that experience. And, you know, in fact, the young women now coming of age grew up in an era of being able to get free contraceptives thanks to the Affordable Care Act. And so now we are going to go back in time considerably, and it is going to be quite quite the uh, shock to folks, I'm afraid. Well, I have to tell you, at the risk of making a lot of men angry at me, (laughs) I think women are the better of the species and that our world would be a a far better place if they'd been in the White House a long time ago. Well, I'm going to stay away from that question, (laughs) (laughs) Alan, if that was a question. But let let me just say on this note, you know, it comes down to this. There is no other form of health care that the government gets to sit in the doctor's office with with your doctor and you, the patient. And people have to really understand that that is what's going on. The barbaric Texas law has all kinds of other terrible flaws to it. But the main thing that people really need to understand is that medical care is not something that should be between anybody other than a patient and the doctor. That's what HIPAA was supposed to be about. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, let's move on to the weather. We've had some wicked weather events lately. Do these kinds of incidents inspire action in your colleagues, or do they inspire resistance? Well, many of us are have been inspired for a very long time to act on climate change, and it was, you know, we were already in the first Congress that I was part of, the 116th. I introduced and we passed a, a bill having to do with dealing with the health effects of climate change. Mm-hmm. So we've been thinking about this for a long time, at least in the Democratic caucus. Sadly, you know, you would think that after what's just happened in Louisiana, that every Louisiana congressperson would be jumping on the climate change bandwagon and taking action. But I would bet just about anything, Alan, that you're not going to see that happen. Once again, this issue, as with so many, has been completely politicized. The remedies fall along party lines or whether you're willing to... Even an acknowledgement that it's real. Yeah, we've got made a little bit of progress. We do have some Republicans who acknowledge that it's real. There's the Conservative Climate Caucus that was started by John Curtis, and there's a few members there that will at least entertain it. But but for the most part, I will tell you that we get completely bogged down as a whole in Congress when we start talking about the remedies, what we need to do right now, not only to curb climate change, which is, of course, radically important, but also take corrective action for all of the damage we've already inflicted. My um, one of, my oldest daughter had a second child a couple a few months ago, and we have four grandchildren. And I just every time I'm with those kids, I just I feel so bad about what our generation and those before us is, are leaving behind for our, for these kids. I just I feel it's just heartbreaking. Well, I, I I hear you on that, Alan. Let me just say this: when it comes to climate change, not surprisingly, private industry has actually gotten way more progressive than yeah. Congress has on it's the amazing, issue of climate change. Yeah, right here in our own district, we have industries, including the cement industry, which of course is one of the largest carbon emitters there is, that have worked actively to mitigate their carbon emissions to reduce them. And so, private industry under you know they they have kids too; they have grandkids too. The, yeah. the CEOs and boards of those companies. And so it may be that the private industry will, will solve some of this problem before we in Congress do. And we're, of course, the ones charged with creating these laws. And companies have stepped up on um, diversity and equity and inclusion issues, too. And mm-hmm. it's been amazing. Right. You know, I mean, just just watch watch this development. I never thought I'd say the day when I could say that America's co- top corporations are the, are the you know leading the progressive movement almost. 
Well, that might be a little bit of an overstatement, but I'm certainly encouraged by their responsiveness to public opinion. Yeah. Well, and customer opinion. And customer opinion, yeah, yeah and stockholder yeah. opinion and that kind of thing. But, you know, it's interesting when President Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, corporations across the country said, well, we're following the principles anyway. We've already taken all the steps to implement the things that we, or we're in the process of implementing the steps that need to be taken. So we're sticking with it, you know. So there is some hope. That's why I say, I, I, I mean, yes, I worry terribly for the next generations to yeah. come. But I also have, I guess, one of those um, sunny side up outlooks on life that well, I gotta be, that you people... wouldn't be in Congress. I mean, if you didn't think well, you could make a difference, you, you know, <laughs> that's the way I've yeah. looked at it yeah. all these years. I've always Absolutely. said that I've, I'm a cynical about how much the fight is, but I'm optimistic enough to pick that fight anyway. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. President Biden has right. taken some nasty criticism from like every direction, including members of the Democratic Party for his handling of the uh, situation in Afghanistan. Has, has that criticism been warranted? Well, Alan, I'm one of the Democrats who has been critical of the handling of the process of withdrawing. I have to start by saying that I really do commend him for finally, for taking a step that needed to be taken 10 years ago. And he's the first president to be brave enough to do it. So I I think that part of the concern over the years of pulling out, aside from the influence of the military industrial complex, is that that it wasn't ever going to be a pretty exit. Which, which is a very good reason why we need to learn the lessons of Afghanistan and not do this again, where we get into these unwinnable wars that right. become endless. Having said that, I am deeply, deeply concerned in particular about the Afghan allies that we have left behind. And I think it's pretty clear that we have left a lot of them behind. The one promise we made to them when they worked with our troops, in many cases, saved their lives, saved them from danger over 20 years was, we're going to take care of you. We are going to make sure that you're able to immigrate to America and we'll, you know, we'll protect you. And we haven't done that. And that is devastating to me. It's devastating to so many of my colleagues. So those of us who are critical of the process are critical of mostly the fact that we did not have it all lined up. And granted, listen, President Biden inherited (laughs) a a bad situation. I'm not suggesting he created the situation with the the stalling of SIV visas and that kind of thing. That was undoubtedly the result of the prior administration, mostly, but the Obama administration has some responsibility here, too. But having said that, you play the the hand you're dealt, and I'm saying that to you as a poker player, and I'm not much of a (laughs) card player. You know, you really need to assess the situation before you start something like this. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't have wanted to see the withdrawal get bogged down where we go through four years of President Biden's administration and we're still not out of Afghanistan. But it just seems to me that the combination of leaving all of those Afghan allies behind, so many of them, and by all, I don't think we have any idea yet how many there are. And also the events of that Thursday when we lost our troops. Yeah. You know, that that to me, that to me is devastating. What a tragic and, loss. You know, the days that they're supposed the, to be getting out, they get taken out the way they did. It was just yeah, and, and, and from what I'm hearing from my colleagues on the Intel Committee is that there was not a failure of intelligence. So, you know, you, we really need answers to how, how we allowed that to happen. Mm. And so we have at least three young service members here in our district. I've spoken to two of the mothers of young men who were stationed at that airport in Kabul. And I spoke to one of them the day uh, that we heard that the troop had been killed and didn't yet know who they were. And she was waiting for word on her son. Thankfully, during my last of several conversations with her, she received a text from him that he was okay. And he's he's, he's now somewhere. He's not back here yet. But he's safe. Yeah. But I, you know, I heard I heard that emotion in her voice. I mean, I'm she sure. broke down crying, and you know, it's completely understandable. And and yeah. of course, we know that thirteen families didn't get a, a good news text from from their kid. Yeah. So it's you know, and I know. Listen, let me just say, I know that President Biden, <laughs> of all people, takes the loss of service members very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I know that it was a tragedy for him, given the loss of his own son. And, you know, I know that it was a tragedy that it was 
almost unbearable for him. So mostly my criticism as far as that day, the day that we lost the, the troops, is not about the president, but about why there were reports that the British evacuation was coming to an end and we held our troops back to, to aid the British, and yet the British troops weren't there. So, you know, that to me causes me concern. We were supposed to be out at 4 o'clock or something that day, and, and we weren't. So there were clearly some military failures that need to be accounted for. But overall, in terms of the process, my biggest problem is with the SIV, the people who should have been SIV holders. You're listening to WDIY. This is the Lehigh Valley Discourse. I'm your host, Alan Jennings. Tonight, I'm proud and happy to say that my guest is Congresswoman Susan Wild, who is the, I think, the record holder for a number of appearances on my show. I've been doing a show for, I don't know, 10, 12 years, I think. And uh, so Susan's commitment to transparency, I think, is very good for, for our district. Susan, it's September, and we've seen very little about the appropriations process outside of the infrastructure stuff. Um, the new fiscal year starts in about, what, 54, 55 days? What, uh, what's like up that. with there? How are we doing? Well, the Appropriations Committee is working hard. We're all working hard. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes things going on. It's always, from what I can tell, it's always a rushed and frantic time of year in Congress, even when you don't have multiple other things going on like we do now. There will be a lot of debate. It's going to be, a, it's, it'll be a stressful couple of months. But ultimately, I can tell you there is no appetite for shutting down the government. You may recall that I came into Congress late in 2018 after winning that special election. So I came in just as we shut down the government, and uh, it you. wasn't. A, and then, well, and then the interesting thing is, it was still shut down when my colleagues joined me in January of 2019, and it, it was a long, awful ordeal. And I don't think anybody wants to see that happen again. So I hope we're going to all be able to come together and make sure that that doesn't happen. Well, we have, you know, the Democrats controlling both chambers, but there's always the filibuster. And, but but it, we shouldn't have a continuing resolution, a series of continuing resolutions this time, right? I mean, we'll get it done. I wouldn't bet on it. I hope we're not going to have continuing resolutions. And for your listeners, that just means that we continue funding at the current rate without any new spending, you know, until we can get the appropriations yeah. passed. Yeah. But I hope, yeah, I hope that doesn't happen. But I, uh, you, never, you can't ever rule that out, Alan. So that's a possibility. Yeah. The infrastructure uh, funding, what's in there for the Lehigh Valley? Do you have any sense of, of what, what comes here as a result of that? Yeah, it's a great bill for the Lehigh Valley. I don't have specific numbers, of course, until we get everything locked down. But there's unquestionably, in addition to what you normally would think of, roads and bridges and that kind of thing, think about the flooding that we've seen, the massive flooding yeah. that we've seen recently, but not just this year. We've seen it every year that I can remember, particularly over the last decade. Uh, you know, and, and so drainage, pipes, waste treatment centers, and then there's there's also money for regional hubs for technology, which I'm hoping the, the Lehigh Valley would become one of those because we're so uniquely situated. So there's an awful lot in there. There's some school funding. We've got Allentown schools that need to be rebuilt, and not just Allentown, but that comes to mind immediately. So infrastructure is, is a winner for, for everybody across the country. And, you know, I, amazingly, we will still see few, if any, well, we'll probably see a couple of Republican votes for it. But overall, I think, yeah, well, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, I shouldn't say a couple. We'll see more than that. But beyond that, we probably won't see a whole lot of Republican votes. And it's ironic because, of course, it's great for everybody's district. Yeah, yep. You know, I'm not very good at forgiveness, but so so I'm watching January 6th unfold, and I don't know, maybe I'm taking it harder than most people do. I was just so disgusted by that display of, of sedition, and, and dis, I mean, it was just a, the worst of our society and our culture was on display that day. And, you know, you, you were became nationally known because of your demonstrated fear. I'd have been right there with you, probably holding your hand, scared to death. Yet the way your your colleagues on the other side have treated this is just um, is just as about just about as despicable. How, how how do you feel about how Congress has tackled that incident? Uh, you know, with or without you know bipartisan support. I mean, you know, are you satisfied with where that's going and how it's how what's, well, what's happened? I'm not I'm not satisfied by the fact that the Senate couldn't pass what had passed the House on a bipartisan basis to have a select committee of, you know, of both parties look into it. You know, when that failed, we had to go back to the drawing board and the speaker 
established a committee that is bipartisan only thanks to Liz Cheney and Adam Kinsinger, and I salute them for at least being willing to, to step up and do the right thing on, on that. I don't agree with them on, on many policy issues, but I'm glad that they did that. So, of course, the concern is going to be, the whole reason we wanted it to be a bipartisan effort was so that it would be accepted by both sides of the aisle. And I don't just mean in Congress, but I mean in the country. And now what we have, once again, is something that's just become ridiculously politicized. All of a sudden, you've got people who were literally cowering that day, and I'm not criticizing anybody for cowering that day because it was scary as hell, but who are now, act, you know, the the one congressman who was quoted as saying it just looked like a bunch of tourists, and yet mm. there's pictures of him looking yeah. terrified Patriots. and running. Yeah, so oh. I honestly think that the behavior of the Republicans in Congress who are now acting like it never happened or that it was a normal day at, at the Capitol is even more reprehensible than yes. the people who, who came to the Capitol that day. And I'm going to call them misguided souls who came to the Capitol that day and thought that they were somehow going to perform an act that they had been directed to do by Donald Trump. So I think that members of Congress and all elected officials have an obligation to speak the truth and to stand up for the right thing. And that's not happening. And that's just really discouraging. I quite honestly can't discuss this topic with people on the other side of the aisle. I'll, t I'll talk about almost any topic with them. I will not talk about January 6th because the the denial, which is ludicrous. It, so it is so ludicrous. I mean, for all these arrests to occur and, and they don't see that as 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 evidence that, that something bad happened that day. It's just. Right. Uh, well, they do. They do. I mean, that's, they, there's no way that they don't know what happened. They were there. They saw it with their own eyes just as I did. It, it's just a matter of pretending that something didn't happen. People say things and believe things in Congress, especially on this topic. Yeah, and, and imagine being those police officers who somehow are expected to like commit hand-to-hand -hand combat with people that were better armed than they were, and mm -hmm. to be assaulted the way they were, and then to have to watch this display of of denial and and anti, you know, I mean, it, it's just I can't I cannot imagine how that must provoke more post-traumatic stress disorder, and I, I mean, just God, it's just well, not remember, right. We've lost three police officers to suicide since then yes. who were involved. That day, yeah, I know. and you know, I, I'm, sh I, I, and at least one is in, his widow is involved in trying to get survivor benefits for an on-the-job death, oh. and is being denied those benefits. And you know, it's just, it's a terrible situation. It's not a coincidence we, that we lost three officers to suicide who were involved that day in fighting off the insurrectionists. And quite honestly, those members of Congress who are not treating them with the utmost respect, really uh, are showing such disrespect for the people who literally protected them. If it were not for them, meaning the Capitol Police officers and the D.C. Metro Police yeah. officers who were there, those insurrectionists would have made it onto the House floor where all of us were. And you use the word truth at some point during your comments. And, and you know, the, the concept of truth these days is even fundamentally now questioned because th nobody, the, the, the folks that are, that are behind some of these crazy ideas have no, they don't believe in the quote truth. They don't, they don't accept the facts. They don't believe in science. How do you begin to have a discourse on an issue when you can't even agree that there are facts? Exactly. That's, that's a major problem. That, and, you know, kind of, we're going to come back full circle right now to what you what we talked about at the very beginning of this, Alan, when, of this interview, when you said that in a way we, the people, are responsible for what's happening in Texas and elsewhere because of the manner in which we vote. Yeah. And, it, you know, the only way we are going to fix what's wrong with this political process is by people really taking their right to vote very, very seriously. And we haven't even talked about voting rights, and I don't know if we will, but that's another whole issue that, of course, is terribly politicized now, yep. but that they also try to understand who the people are who are telling them the truth and acting accordingly. The truth. I mean, we've got a former president who is out running around claiming that our entire democratic process has failed and people mm -hmm. are buying it. I mean, right. 
so so even though his own appointed judges sided against him and elected Republican officials like the state Secretary of State in Georgia and I mean where do we go where do we how do we solve these problems when we can't even agree on the facts that related to those problems it just it just is well, we've, we've got an example we have an example of that right here in our well all of the Republican congressmen except for Fitzpatrick voted not to certify the Pennsylvania election results I, it's unbelievable Scott, Scott Perry is the loudest voice of all of course his election was okay you know, and all of them, you know, they, yeah. they, they were duly and rightfully elected, according to them. But but the president was not. So yeah. it's, that's the kind of stuff that just makes me so mad. I want people to to think about logic. That's just not a logical position. Yeah. You know, and, my and, race as a member of Congress was legit, but the president's was not. And everybody votes on the same ballot. Well, and the fact that there were seven million votes separating the two candidates I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, with all due respect, I don't think we Democrats are smart enough to pull off a 7 million vote fraud without having <laughs> lots of evidence all over the place to show it. <laughs> yeah, know? that would be quite a feat. All I know is that the fact, that's, you know, the fact that we still have the big lie being perpetuated by so many members yeah. of Congress on the other side of the aisle is terribly upsetting to so me. How does the it, average American you know, figure out what's the truth and what's, you know, what's a lie? It's, it's, it's just unbelievable. You know, because really you is. serve uh, for just two two years at a time, I mean that's seven hundred and thirty days or something. That's you're basically doing fundraising around the clock. The second half of the show tonight, I've got Jeff Clements, who is the founder and executive director of American Promise, the group that is promoting the overturning of the Supreme Court decision, Citizens United. They've got twenty states so far that have approved of an, of, uh, an amendment to the United States Constitution. Um, have you looked at this issue? I mean, you're a lawyer. I don't know how much you've thought about it, but I, I mean, that strikes me as something as bad as a, maybe a Dred Scott uh, decision. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on it and whether there's you know, anything Congress can do or, or is, is willing well, to do. We've been trying to do that in the form of H.R. 1 since I first came to Congress, and we don't seem to be getting anywhere with it because this, we, we've passed H.R. 1 in the House both times, and we have not been able to get the Senate to pass it, and that mm-hmm. doesn't look like that's going to happen this year. And Citizens United is another organization devoted to this cause. And I've been endorsed by them, and I completely embrace the principles of getting rid of dark money, of campaign finance reform. It is truly hard to believe how much time has to be spent by members of Congress, particularly in difficult districts like mine, raising money when what you want to think they're doing is legislating for a better way of life for you and everybody else in the country. And that's just appalling. You know, the average congressional campaign, and you, you said it, it only lasts for two years. You're only in for two years. Yeah. Costs somewhere between, I mean, six million is a conservative number. And wow. in some of the big, in some of the states like California, way more than that. Think of all the problems in the world that we could solve with that kind of money. So do you, do you remember how much you spent the last time? Well, my, my campaign spent something on the order of $5 million. Uh, but then there's also what's called independent expenditures, right. which means organizations that come in and, you, you by the way, the campaign is not allowed to coordinate with them at all. Sometimes you wouldn't and want you, to because the message they use is a little bit too aggressive. or Well, know. yeah, that's true. And sometimes you're a little frustrated by the messaging they're using and that kind of thing. But anyway, I think the estimate of what the independent expenditures were in my race was another million and a half perhaps. So it's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. When you you break it down by the amount of money you have to raise per like minute, it's really got to be, gosh, I don't know how you get anything done. You know, it's just, just well, I have to tell you, so I have taken a very hard line on this. I will, there are many members of Congress who literally come to committee hearings for the intro and for to be gaveled in. And then they'll leave and go do a couple hours of phone calls and come back when it's their turn to question whatever witnesses is appearing. I won't leave a committee hearing for fundraising. I mean, that's what I'm there for. And I consider it to be a dereliction of duty not to stay for committee hearings. But I can tell you, you know, there's pushback on that because people, the almighty campaign dollar is considered so important. And I, to me, it's not worth it if you have to miss the the real business of legislating. Congresswoman Susan Wild, thanks so much for being on our show again. You're listening to WDIY, Lehigh Valley Discourse. 
Stay with us. Next is Jeffrey Clement, who is pushing for the overturning of the United States Supreme Court decision that put a lot of money into politics. Susan, thank you for being with us. Great being with you, Alan. Take care. I'm Alan Jennings, your host. Stick around. Celtic Fair, celebration of Celtic music and culture, from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Brittany, and Galicia, to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar, every Thursday from 7 to 9, here on WDIY. Galactic Travels brings you hour-long soundscapes of electronic, ambient, and space music. That's Thursday night at 11, right here on WDIY Allentown, Lehigh Valley Public Radio, 88.1 FM and WDIY.org. Many choices, real voices. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. This is Lehigh Valley Discourse on WDIY. I'm Alan Jennings, your host. Americans, we're just too cynical about our country, our government, the institutions like the Catholic Church, the Boy Scouts, and too many others that are supposed to exist for the improvement of the quality of our lives. In some cases, those of us who have some responsibilities for those entities share some of the blame. Uh, Folks watch, believing themselves to be helpless, incapable of writing the course. It doesn't make for healthy citizenship. They have almost become nihilistic, believing in nothing. There's so many things that go wrong in all these institutions that um, people just give up uh, any respect for them, and, and we get the mess that we're in today, I think. Too many who think of themselves as patriots actually hate their government. Friends, this is a democracy. If we don't get what we want, theoretically, it's because there aren't enough citizens who support your position. So we organize, we participate, we fight for uh, our cause, but it's hard to organize people who have given up, people who don't understand the system and most likely don't have any money. They think the system's rigged, and along comes the most self-absorbed president in history, happy to feed the cynicism. If the president of the United States, a billionaire, believes it's rigged, well, that does it. I'm climbing, I'm going over the wall. There isn't a problem that this country can't solve, in my judgment, if we understand it, listen to, and believe in the facts, the truth, and organize. The problem is money. Money can define the issues. It can even make up the issues. It can help you find the facts. It can be a vehicle for turning lies into facts. It can get you to join the cause. It can get you to stay home, watch TV, eat Doritos, and have a few beers. Allowing the few to move their agenda or block yours is baked into our democracy. We have 100 senators, 435 members of Congress. Why do we have 100 senators? These guys are given the power to slow down the enthusiasm and the faster pace of of the House of Representatives. Idaho has the same number of United States senators as California has. That's obviously designed to give disproportionate power to small rural states. We have the filibuster, where one member of the United States Senate can block an entire agenda. And even though each of us has the same number of votes that Jeff Bezos has, he can buy the U.S. Senate. I don't think any of us can. So a handful of people have too much power. Far too many have too little. That handful gets their taxes cut. Too many get their programs cut. They get their regulations cut. We get more dangerous working conditions. Our water poisoned. Our air polluted. They get historically low interest rates. We get predatory lending. They get the mortgage interest deduction. We get cuts in affordable housing programs. Their schools get the most funding. Our schools get the least. That's the way it works if we're going to let it be that way. It doesn't have to be this way. We, the people, can fix this. Uh, There is a way. The question is, do we have the will? My next guest is Jeffrey Clements. Jeff is the founder and president of American Promise, a citizens' movement to overturn Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission. Jeff literally wrote the book on the disaster of Citizens United. The book is called Corporations Are Not People, Reclaiming Democracy from Big Money and Global Corporations. And to give you any sense of whether how hip this guy is, Bill Moyers wrote the foreword uh, for the book. Jeff, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Alan. So good to be here with you. 
let's let's just talk first, Jeff, about your background. You know, obviously, our listeners in Lehigh Valley don't know you. How did you get where you are on this? Well, you know, like a lot of people, a lot of Americans, I uh, I have had um, a, a a movement to where I am now over these past twenty five years. I I started uh, as a lawyer up in uh, in New England, and um, that was in nineteen eighty eight, and what I learned in law school back in the late 80s uh, about the Constitution and the role of money um, and the First Amendment and free speech uh, started looking very different over the 25 years I practiced law. And I served as, and dangerously so, I'll add, I, I served as chief of the Public Protection Bureau and the Assistant Attorney General uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, we were trying to enforce laws and sometimes able to do so quite effectively against you know, bad actors, uh, the global cigarette and tobacco industry, uh, which oh. used deceptive and illegal means, uh, you know, uh, predatory lending and fraud, the 2006 mortgage meltdown that led to the 2008 crash. Uh, we were one of the first states to take action against Wall Street firms that had rigged that, and we're trying to get away uh, scot-free. And to, uh, unfortunately, uh, although some states could do some things, they largely did get away scot-free. So, I went back to private practice. I was a partner in a large, large Boston law firm. Uh, but I started mulling and, uh, and thinking and, and frankly feeling like you said in your setup, I too believe every problem is solvable if we reason our way through it together as Americans. But I needed to do some reasoning myself about what happened and what did lawyers and judges have to do with it. Um, and it was almost everything, you know, high paid lawyers and uh, massive money to influence decisions like Citizens United. Um, and I felt as both a citizen and a lawyer that I could not just let that stand without at least expressing what I thought went wrong. And that ended up being the book, which, of course, um, once once uh, I started sort of moving from law practice to actually getting out all around the country with the book, talking to Americans, it didn't matter if they were conservative liberal, independent, rural, urban, you name it, uh, black, white, Americans wanted to have this conversation. So this is 2015 or so, 2016 then. And, uh, and I saw, and many, many, many people saw, we have to change this. And it's a constitutional solution. There's no easy fix. And we got to start, get started. So uh, I, jo I joined many Americans in, in getting started and, 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 and determined to uh, fix this together. So Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission. What's wrong with it? Yeah, um, well, you know, I did a brief in the Supreme Court in that case, uh, and, and, and that did lead to the book. And the Supreme Court has a lot of smart people. It was a five to four decision. So I'll just, uh, I'll just put it somewhat neutrally. The five uh, in the majority thought that um, the McCain-Feingold Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, which had uh, reasonable limits around the spending of money by corporations and unions, for that matter, in state uh, in federal elections, uh, violated the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. They said corporations, no matter how big, have a free speech right, just like you and me, no matter how global, <laughs> to have a free speech right uh, to spend money to buy influence and, and determine election outcomes. Uh, and at least by implication, and then cases that followed it by actual ruling by the Supreme Court, they said the same so-called right, and I say so-called because it's, 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 it's invented by the Supreme Court. It didn't exist for 200 years, but the so-called right to spend unlimited money as a free speech right that you and me and our, all Americans can't do anything about, that that is, is, is what billionaires get too. And so what's wrong with it is it's completely against American principles of government. It is a principle of autocracy or, or aristocracy. It's a principle that says, if you have more power, if you have more money, you not only have uh, the benefit of that, you actually have a constitutional right to use that power, no matter how much it takes power away from your fellow citizen, no matter how much that means that your neighbors, your, your friends, your, your citizens who don't agree with you can't be heard, can't be represented. That's the way it is, and it's the way it should be, according to the Supreme Court. Now, the reason it's so unpopular and controversial is most Americans know it's a lie. It's a bankrupt ideology that we started to finish off in 1776 and have been trying ever since, which is 
No, you know, economically, you want to go buy your Lexus or go to Mars, you, you go for it. We're rooting for you. But, you know, when it comes to politics and, and debate and elections, we're just the same. I don't care if you're a, a cop, a teacher or a billionaire. You got one vote. You stand up in New England, we have public meetings, you stand up in your public meeting, you get the same time as everybody else. You don't get extra time because you're rich. And so that's why Americans know this is a lie. And it's why we have to fix it, because otherwise, there's no, we're just beginning to see what the meltdown looks like as we're being asked to accept, you know, autocracy. And I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. So I think we're going to fix it. But that's what's wrong with it, in short. So the American system was set up as a checks and balances system where the Congress can be checked by the executive branch and judicial branch. The judicial branch can be checked by the legislative and the executive branch. In the case of the Supreme Court ruling on in a case like this one, comparable to Dred Scott and how wrong it is, what is the check or balance that enables us to throw this crazy stuff out, do it right? Yeah, and, and we have one, and that's, that's the beauty of our system. Um, and it ain't easy, I'll tell you, but we have to use it. So the check and balance, the only one we have now, is, is you and me and all Americans coming together. You know, we disagree on a lot of things, but we can come together on this and pass and ratify an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that says Pennsylvania and all the states and, are, you know, at the federal level, we have the right to actually have reasonable limits on how money is used. Uh, in our political system. Yes, we can have maximum limits uh, that you can't spend more than that in an election because it's going to deprive other Americans of free speech. So we, it protects free speech, but it, everybody gets free speech. Everybody has an equal right to participate in the vote, and it stops the corruption, and it uh, puts us back on track for a, a shot at um, extending you know, American democracy for another many generations. So the thing about it, when the Supreme Court says something, a law is unconstitutional, as they did in this case and, and, and related cases afterwards at the state and federal level, when they say that Congress and the states are not allowed to pass laws to limit the money in our political system from, from big interests, um, that means Congress and the states can't fix it. So we can't just ask Congress to pass another law and say, well, let's try again, because the Supreme Court has said that's unconstitutional, right. and they'll strike it down. But the constitutional amendment process is the tool, and it's the beauty of it is it has been used before. When we pass this constitutional amendment to reverse Citizens United, to um, put uh, the country back on track with limits on money in elections, it will be the eighth time that Americans have reversed Supreme Court decisions and said and, and served as the check and balance. Eight, eight of our constitutional kind of amendments examples do you have, have of those, those eight. Well, you mentioned Dred Scott, and, and just to remind um, you know, your listeners, Dred Scott was the decision that said African-Americans, black people, will have no rights ever in America, right. whether they're free or slaves. It was in 1856. It led to Abraham Lincoln coming off the bench as a lawyer and saying that can't stand. It's the birth of the Republican Party, uh, ultimately the Civil War, and to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Uh, ending slavery, uh, enshrining the equal right to vote, uh, protecting uh, due process and equal protection and citizenship for every American, all of us, uh, black and white. And and then we did it again. The Supreme Court said women have no right to vote. 19th Amendment changed that. The Supreme Court said 18, 19, and 20-year-olds can't vote. 26th Amendment changed that. The Supreme Court said poll taxes that keep uh, black people and, and, and other people, who, uh, all people who haven't paid their tax to vote is a tax on voting. Uh, it's perfectly fine with the Supreme Court. 24th Amendment reversed that. So over and over and over again, the Supreme Court gets out of touch with core American principles and Americans come back to our, our core values, come together. It's not easy, but we do it. And so those are some of the examples. So, so what do we have to do? To, what has to happen for us to overturn a Supreme Court decision? What, what has to happen? How does that get done? Yeah. So here's how a constitutional amendment happens. Um, and, and all of our 27 amendments from the Bill of Rights uh, to the most recent and, and the 27th Amendment in 1995 or so, uh, which said Congress can't raise its own pay without letting the voters have a check on them. Um, all of them. Uh, met this hurdle. So when I, I, I say that as a preface, because it's going to sound impossible when I tell you 
we need two. We need we need two thirds of Congress to vote. That means sixty-seven senators, two hundred ninety House members. We have a plan for that at American Promise, and and it's a lot further along than people think. So I'll say more about that. Why you know when we have a Congress that can't agree when to have lunch and is fighting each other almost literally. How are we going to get two thirds of Congress? Well, I'll share you right. what we're doing, and 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 but so we need two thirds of Congress to vote out the amendment proposal. It's already been introduced. It has a lot of support in Congress. We have a a, a bit of a hill to climb, and that's where all Americans come in to help us get there. But two thirds of Congress vote. It then comes out to the states and thirty eight state legislators, well, not legislators, legislatures. So so the state houses in thirty eight states. Uh, yes, exactly. That's okay. the, uh, it's actually three quarters. Three quarters. Of the state. Okay. So two two thirds of Congress propose the amendment, and then it gets ratified by three quarters of the states, and that's thirty eight states. So that's how it works. Sounds really hard. It is hard, but Americans do hard things, and we've done this before. We know how to do it. So uh, that, that's that's the challenge, and that's the opportunity. Let me ask you kind of a mundane question, but I think it's it's important. What exactly, I mean, this is basically the corporations versus the rest of the people. What exactly is a corporation? It can be one person, right? It can be 100,000 people. Yeah, I'd like to first uh, just tweak your premise just a little bit. I I don't see this, and I I don't think it's corporations against um, everyone else. I think the Supreme Court made a serious mistake by making corporations just like people uh, with free speech rights, because they're not. And I'll say, I'll say well, what a corporation is legally and why I, that, that follows from that. But I think it's important because it's, it's a systemic problem. Um, so corporations will spend as much money as they can. Unions will spend as much money as uh, they can. Individuals will spend as much money as they can. And if you're a billionaire or a global corporation, uh, you just have a lot more money than everybody else. And so then that, that is the money pouring into the system. But the, the Supreme Court created that problem, and that's what needs to be fixed. Now, to your question about corporations, yeah, exactly. So when, if you're a mom-and-pop business uh, down on Main Street, you probably filled out a form with the state to be a corporation mm-hmm. or a limited liability company uh, because that's a good legal form for doing your business. It, it's perfectly... Not only fine, it's really it's a good, really good idea because you know it's a good way to bring, use capital to do productive enterprise um, and to you know be able to make contracts as as mom and pop Inc down on the main street and not as uh, mom and her dad and and so that uh, that enables business to function. Um, you can also be a Delaware corporation with sixty thousand employees and operations in a hundred countries. And, and layers and layers and layers of corporation and tax structures out of, uh, you know, tax havens and everything else all around the world. They're both corporations. And that's why, you know, I don't like to say corporations against all of us because many of us, including myself, uh, you know, use the appropriate legal vehicles to do our activities and business. And there's nothing wrong with that. And many business people, frankly, agree completely we have to fix this and support the amendment, the constitutional amendment. So, it is. Most people, I think, appreciate, unlike the Supreme Court, that your question is really important. If you're, if you're going to say there is a free speech First Amendment right under the Bill of Rights, you should really know what you're talking about. Because I think most people wouldn't think, like, there's a free speech right to spend money of a foreign government. Well, a foreign government is an entity uh, that exists for a certain purpose, and it can be you know, good, bad, or indifferent. It, it, that's what it is. A corporation is not a person. It's a business vehicle. It's an entity. Uh, and it can be good, bad, or indifferent. Um, but it is not a human being, an American citizen. And so that was the question that your question is so important. The Supreme Court didn't even bother to ask that question, let alone answer. So you've got 20 states that have already passed the uh, some kind of a resolution calling on the, the 28th, 28th Amendment? Yes, this should be the 28th Amendment, yeah. So you've got 20 states so far. My guess, is just in my perspective on politics, is that 20, 20 states are blue states. And I'm just curious, out of the 20 states, uh, what do they look like? Are they red, blue, purple? 
well, you're going to be surprised. Um, you know, they're, they're not just blue. And this is not a, a blue uh, issue or a blue movement. This is an American issue. Um, and so let me, let me tell you some of the states. Montana, Colorado, both 75% yes votes from voters in those states to pass to call for this constitutional amendment and tell Congress to get going on it. Alaska was actually the most recent state uh, to do this. We're very strong in Wyoming. Uh, passed the House, almost all Republicans. Uh, we're very strong in Maine, where Republicans are working with independents and Democrats to move this forward. Um, so I think if you, uh, you can look at the polls, too, uh, in Pennsylvania and elsewhere, support for this constitutional amendment is through the roof. Uh, Republicans, Democrats, independents agree, uh, because everybody's affected by it. You know, Democrats are just as good at spending big money as Republicans are. Um, foreign governments don't care what your politics are. The money's coming in. Um, so I think this is an issue that we really can unite on, and, and we already have. So we have Republicans, Democrats, independents on our board, our staff, our membership. Um, this is really, and that's the beauty of this. We not only do a big thing that fixes a really big problem, but on the way to doing it, we can actually learn and, and heal and, and fix our kind of civic, our civic uh, union in this country as well. You're listening to Lehigh Valley Discourse on WDIY. I'm your host, Alan Jennings. My guest is Jeff Clements, who is the guy leading the charge to overturn one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in history, Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission. Um, so, um, Jeff, what about Pennsylvania? My understanding is Pennsylvania is next in your, in your uh, campaign. And, and how did you come to Pennsylvania? Uh, how did you come to that choice? Yeah, well, there are a lot of states doing this, and and, okay. and and rather than call it my campaign or even American Promises campaign, I think it's it can be Pennsylvania's campaign, um, and that's how we work. We don't sort of drop in and say, here, you know, we have a great idea, do what we want you to do. We help Americans, support Americans, do what they want to do, and, and that's fix this problem. So we, we do have 22 states already on, on the board. Uh, we want to uh, get other states, and there's a lot of activity all over the country, but it's really exciting that there's a bunch of Pennsylvanian citizens across the political spectrum who are stepping up saying, this is a great idea. Let's do this. And, 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 and we'll, we'll get, we'll start. So if you go to AmericanPromise.net, AmericanPromise.net forward slash Pennsylvania, you know, you'll see Tom Ridge and Reverend Hescox, a conservative evangelical leader. And you'll see, you know, other, other Pennsylvanians from not just political or our faith leaders, but from across the political spectrum, uh, have signed on, and you can sign on too. And the idea is, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a pledge. Let's work together. Let's fix this problem, and and then uh, we at American Promise, uh, with many Pennsylvanians involved, will support you and your efforts at every level. And we hope that Pennsylvania will join this great movement and be the 23rd state. Uh, and we'll have to hurry because Wyoming's right behind, and many other states. But I. I think I think we got a shot, and and so we're going to kick it off on Constitution Day in Philadelphia at Independence Hall and the Constitution Center outside there. Um, on then Constitution Day is uh, September 17th, and we'll be coming to Harrisburg and Bethlehem and York and Pittsburgh and all over the state uh, to share to share this great opportunity and and a, a really important cause uh, so that Pennsylvanians can join together and and, and help carry it uh, over the finish line with us. So let me, you know, I think a lot of people pick sides based on who's on which side, right? So sometimes I'm not, I'm not familiar enough with the candidate. If I know somebody who I trust and, and they say support this person, I'm good enough for that, right? So um, who is on, I mean, you just listed a number of constituents who are on your side. Is there any one constituency that is bitterly opposed and putting everything they can into, the, into fighting you on this? Well, it's, it's really interesting, Alan. Um, you know, you don't very much hear. Sometimes you do, but less and less and less um, do you hear a really strong, coherent case for the other side of the argument. Um, and the other side of the argument, as I said, is, hey, this is free speech. If you start limiting money in elections, you're going to have government censorship, and the voters can decide based on all the information what they think. But the fact is, now we've had a decade with this experiment, this radical experiment in, in the new First Amendment that was just invented by the Supreme Court rather than part of the Constitution, but they made it up. We've now had a decade. Well, what does it look like? We have $100 billion or so spent on toxic, divisive, disinformation, hate campaigns over and over again. And most Americans, like my friend 
um, in, in Maine, David Trahan, head of the Sportsman's Alliance of Maine, says, we're under an avalanche. We can't speak and we can't hear each other. So it's not free speech and everybody knows it. And so you rarely actually hear a coherent argument that, no, this is a bad idea, this constitutional amendment, because it will limit free speech. Most people know it will help free speech because we'll hear more voices, more information, and more, more, more debate. And, and we'll have more candidates um, being able and more voters being able to actually talk and debate and engage in this process. So it's actually more free speech. So you don't tend to hear that. What do you see? You see sort of the dark money. Um, the biggest thing that the other side does is try to make it seem partisan. Uh, because that's the way you stop this. When you need 67 votes in the Senate, all they have to do is not actually try to convince you that this is that the way we're doing this now with money and politics is a good idea, because they know nobody thinks that. Um, in fact, you know, the uh, um, some of the big spenders on the other side did, did a survey and a polling of the American people, a really deep study, and and they and they found that stop billionaires from buying elections. There was nothing they could say that did not make Americans feel really enthusiastic about stopping billionaires uh, from buying elections. So what they do is say, oh, that's a liberal idea. Uh, that's a democratic idea. That's, that's, you know, Barack Obama thought that and get, and they try to get Republicans to think like, oh, they don't want to, they don't want to go there. That's, that's what progressives are doing. Um, and that's their most effective weapon because we need 67 votes in the Senate. We need 38 states. We need unity. We need, we need Americans. Uh, stepping up for America, all they need is to keep the hate and the divisiveness going, and they win. So that's their strategy. So they don't usually come out from behind their big money to actually debate. Uh, but sometimes we, we've had some good debates, including at the Constitution Center. And, and so far, we continue to see about 80% of the, of the listeners say they're, they're, they're staying with American promise and the constitutional amendment, even after the debate. But that's, that's kind of what the arguments on the other side look like. Jeff, with just a couple of minutes left, what can people do? The listeners of the, I, I believe that the listeners of WDIY are the smartest radio listeners in Lehigh Valley. There's a lot of sharp people. They, 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 they're engaged. They understand the, the battle. What can the average American here in Pennsylvania do to support this effort? Well, for step one, go to AmericanPromise.net forward slash Pennsylvania. AmericanPromise.net forward slash Pennsylvania. And you'll find the pledge. Um, and it says, sign the pledge. You can read it, uh, but basically it's, we the people of Pennsylvania, three, with the Pennsylvania resolution calling for an amendment to the United States Constitution to reaffirm the power of citizens to regulate the raising and spending of money in elections. That's a big step, and bigger than it seems. So what does the pledge do? Well, what it does is it connects us together so that we can act. Um, it shows uh, Pennsylvania and the rest of the country that we're coming into this together and we're going to work together. And we won't bombard you with fundraisers and emails and everything else, but you will be able to stay in touch, learn more about the next steps, and including if you're in Philadelphia, of course, come on down to the Constitution Day event. We'll actually be in, in, in Bethlehem uh, on September 18th, that Saturday night, and so you'll be getting news of, of that and able to come out and join your neighbors in the community and finding out more, learning more, and, and joining the effort in Pennsylvania. So there's a lot of different ways uh, to help forward this cause. We have a candidate pledge program that has Republicans, Democrats, independents at all levels of office signing on. Uh, many other ways to uh, get involved, but um, the best first step is to sign the pledge and, and connect with American Promise. The battle is, is, a, is a big one. This is, this is tough stuff. It requires every participating citizen to do more than they do now, which is ba barely enough people voting. But this is a cause that needs everybody's attention. I have long said that I am cynical enough to understand what I'm up against, but optimistic enough to pick the fight anyway. This is one of those battles that we have to pick the fight. This is um, the kind of issue that can destroy our democracy. People give up because they know they can't beat the money. And before you know it, the money's got a complete hegemony on all the power uh, that exists in this country. We can't allow that to happen. Democracies can't, can't be sustained in that environment. Uh, we've, got to, we've got to do this. So I want to thank Jeff Clement for uh, being with us uh, from um, his perch, and I think you're in Massachusetts now. 
And um, thanks for listening. I want to thank my friend, Neil Heaver, for working that machine over there that keeps us from sounding um, like we don't know what we're doing. And uh, Jeff, thanks for being part of the show. Alan, thank you. It was really a great pleasure to talk with you. All right. You are listening to Lehigh Valley Discourse on WDIY. I'm your host, Alan Jennings. Thanks for being with us. Hope you come back next time. Please join WDIY's very own Alan Jennings along with American Promise on Saturday, September 18th from 5 to 8 p.m. at the Edge Restaurant in Bethlehem with a 4-Hour Freedom Gathering. To learn more about how you can help keep freedom, equal rights, and effective government of the people here in the Lehigh Valley and across Pennsylvania, go online to AmericanPromise.net.